Hey everybody, this is Pastor Todd, and you're listening to the Grace Community Church Sermon Podcast. We uh, finish our I Did It for the Pizza sermon series this week, which is kind of shocking. I've been feeling like it's been going really, really fast. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. It's been fun for me to try and help you redeem the things that motivate you. So many of us are motivated by things that are unconscious. We don't really think about them. They don't often bubble up to the surface. So I was hoping to surface some of those things that are secretly making you do what you do. And of course, because I'm a Bible preacher, my hope is to help you lay the story of Jesus over the story of your life. So that as the story of Jesus seeps into everything you are and everything you do, it redeems who you are and what you do in a tangible way. I think we sometimes forget that that's the point of Christianity, to see our lives redeemed tangibly, for there to be the tangible sense of the love of Jesus all about our being, our person, and our actions. To see lives actually changed and to see those changing lives actually change the world is the goal, after all. So uh, this week I'm going to try and help you not to waste your life. I wasted my life, wanted no one to say ever. Am I right? (laughs) I think it's universally true that nobody would ever choose to waste their life. That's not the life goal we're working towards. Someday as I lie on my deathbed, I want to think, you know, I just wasted that life of mine. Nobody wants to waste their life, which is why most of us are obsessed to greater or lesser degree with purpose. This is a motivation that lies beneath the surface. We want to live with purpose. We want to live on purpose. Why? Because we don't want to waste our lives. Let's define the terms. Purpose. Something set up as an object or end to be attained. Something that is set up as an object or an end to be obtained. My only problem with objects and ends is that they're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from idolatry. Can you relate? A friend of mine put it this way, a good thing is good until it becomes a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. It's my friend Mark from Seattle. A good thing is good until it becomes a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. Objects and ends are fine in and of themselves, but when they begin ascending to the level of godness, when we begin worshiping them, living our lives in exclusive orientation to those objects or ends, we find ourselves in trouble. So here's the central question for today's sermon. How can we live purposeful lives without becoming materialistic idolaters? That's the task. How? How can we do that? How can we live on purpose without becoming materialistic idolaters? It's with great joy that I get to preach to you today from a passage of Scripture that contains my life verse. So this will be really fun. I wrote this sermon in record time. I think I wrote the sermon itself in 35 minutes. I've written sermons over this series that have taken me several hours to write. That's on top of all the days of preparation, but this one was light work because I Know this verse kind of like I know myself. Out of Philippians 2, beginning in chapter 2 at the 12th verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You'll hear me um, refer to this verse, particularly verse 15, um, slightly differently from the way in which I read it just now from the English Standard Version, because I memorized this passage in the New King James. The New King James Version is the Bible I grew up with as a kid, and so it's the one I've been really studying intensely since I was 15. I only switched to the ESV um, full-time maybe eight years ago. So it still strikes me as a little bit awkward. So if I drift a little bit from what I just read, um, that's why. Fortunately, we don't have it on screen. Then you'd be thinking all the time, he's saying it slightly differently. But I memorized this one at a young age and it has um, really run my life for most of my life. I'm here to help you redeem your need for purpose today. I could give you the um, thesis of the sermon off the top and you wouldn't really need to listen to the rest of it. We could start with the conclusion, which is always a good place to start. If you don't want to waste your life, shine in the dark. That's it, full stop. I, in fact, said that to Nikki this morning. We were sitting at the breakfast table having a bit of a difficult morning. And we never want to have a difficult morning on Sunday. It's the highlight of our week. It's the biggest moment of our week. We do everything we can to prepare ourselves to come to this moment full of joy, full of life, full of excitement and anticipation. But just like you, I'm sure, there are days that are tough for us. So as we sat at breakfast this morning, not really speaking, just finding ourselves in a bit of a dark place. As I got up to put the dishes away and head into church, whereas it would turn out the difficulties would continue, I said to her, look, honey, here's the thesis for today. Shine in the dark. So that's what I'm about to go do. I'm going to shine in the dark. If you don't want to waste your life, first point for you to think about today, keep Jesus in mind. We get this from verse 12, therefore, my beloved. The therefore here at the start of verse 12 is meant to point us to Jesus. The therefore here is referring to the previous 11 verses in Philippians chapter 2 that speak about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what the ramifications are for us. So put simply for you today, if you don't want to waste your life, keep Jesus in mind. Keep him in your mind, keep him on your heart, keep him on your lips. One thing that for me has been absolutely central in my spiritual life is the development of an ongoing conversation with Jesus. And this is something that I carry throughout my days. In fact, sometimes I find myself speaking out loud and people looking at me like, what's wrong with him? Because I'm kind of talking to Jesus throughout the day and sometimes my talking actually becomes vocalized. I speak to the Lord the moment I wake up. I speak to him throughout my morning. In fact, every time I walk outside, it's almost inadvertent by this point. I thank him for something. I bless him for something that I see. Jesus in my heart, Jesus on my lips, Jesus on my mind. I just want to encourage you today, maybe you've never even thought about doing this. If you keep a running conversation going with Jesus throughout your days, you will build a beautiful life. 
If you don't want to waste your life, keep Jesus in mind. And second point, remember that you are loved and therefore you have nothing to prove. A woman could weep at this point. A man could weep at this point. Therefore, my beloved. Therefore, my beloved, we are the loved. You could pause right there for a minute. If we are the loved, what else do we need? I think the answer is nothing. But if we're honest, how often do we live as if that is the answer? As if there's nothing we need because we have been so dearly loved by God in Christ. If you don't want to waste your life, remember that you are loved. Therefore, you have nothing to prove. How would your life change if you began living it like you have nothing to prove? I think you would find yourself living free. I think you would find yourself living beautifully. I think you would find yourself living in grace and graciously because you have nothing to prove. I want to invite you, if you don't want to waste your life, to do your part to undo the love deficit that is ravaging our world. Could you wave at me if you've ever experienced that love deficit? You're looking for love, but you don't get what you need. And this isn't just in romantic relationships. Right? You can love someone well, even if you just met them for the first time. I'll tell you where I work on this is in the Tim Hortons drive through line. I'm very judgmental when it comes to how they handle me in that line. If I get a grumpy person or a person who's not sweating the details, it puts me off, it upsets me. Because I'm thinking to myself, how hard could it be to come to that microphone with joy and purpose and focus? How hard could it be? And then as soon as I think that thought, the Lord typically rebukes me. And reminds me how little I know about their life and what that person happens to be bringing to that moment. And so what I work on in that moment is loving that person well, looking at them through the window, smiling at them fully, thanking them for their help, asking them how they're doing. That's just one little example. I'm sure you can think of 17 more that are much, much better. Do your parts to help undo the love deficit that is ravaging the world. And point number three, uh, keep an eye on your obedience. Still in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and every disobedient, rebellious person like me said, touche, pastor, touche. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Do you always obey? The answer is, of course, somebody help me out. No. As you have always... What, what, by the way, are we supposed to obey? The original context here in Philippians, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He's probably thinking of the instructions that he has left with them, that he has given to them over the years, in person and perhaps in writing. Now, of course, in Philippians, we know for sure he's writing them a letter, this chance he'd written them before. And he had given them instructions on what it looks like to follow Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So I wonder if the Philippians always obeyed. I think probably not, because the Philippians were probably people just like us, and I never once met a person who practiced perfect obedience. Never once. So perhaps he was expecting them to be obeying his way of life, what he taught them about following Jesus. What are we supposed to obey? We are not the church at Philippi. Paul is not writing to us personally. What are we supposed to obey? You probably know where Pastor Todd is going here. Whenever we come to a question of obedience in Christianity, we reduce it down to the simplest terms. Those terms found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you want to know what to obey, that is what you must obey. The task of a Christian life is learning to love God fully with everything you've got and learning to love the people around you fully with everything you've got as you learn to love yourself because you are so lovely that God himself sent his son to suffer and die in your place for your sins and to rise again for your salvation. That's how lovely you are. And because God has so loved you, you also ought to love one another. We love him because he first loved us. If you're wondering what to obey, obey the great commandment, the love of God and the love of neighbor as you develop the love of self. But even reduced to those simplest of simplest terms, do we always fully love God? The answer is no. Do we always fully love neighbor? The answer is no. Do we always fully love ourselves? And once again, resoundingly, the answer is No, the answer is no. So what do we do? By God's grace, we keep working at it until we mend the world. One thing is to say, well, I never obey perfectly, therefore I'm going to quit. The other thing to say is, okay, Lord, help me continue to walk with you as you through me mend the worlds by the love of God. Help me, Lord, to walk in that which you have accomplished for me. Help me, Lord, where I am weak. I'm weak, Lord, you're strong. You're God, Lord, I'm not. Help me, Jesus. And then you keep working at it. You have to work, point number four, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. What does he go on to say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here we come to, it's not quite a paradox, but it's difficult. We know and believe that we have been saved by grace through faith alone. And yet here we're clearly instructed to work it out. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. A salvation which has been accomplished for you completely, objectively, outside of your best efforts. Your salvation is something that was accomplished for you by God in Christ. And yet you are commanded here to work at it. A life of faith is a life of constant work while resting in the fact that God is working with you, receive it, with a smile on his face. 
How do I know with a smile on his face? Because of verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to be willing and to be acting for his delight. That's it from the Greek. And I hope that put a smile on your face. In the English, it's for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. From the Greek, for it is God who works in you, both to be willing... Okay, it's active, it's present, it's continuous. To be willing and to be acting. Again, it's active, it's present, it's continuous. He's not just willing, he's to be willing. He has not just acted once, he is acting. For it is God who works in you, both to be willing and to be acting. For what? For his delight. There's a big smiley face in my notes next to that word. To remind me that God has a big old goofy grin on his face. God is delighted. That's why <laughs> Christian work is restful and fun. Because God is working with you and he's delighted about it. That one point alone has the capacity to completely change your life. <laughs> God is delighted. I think this is something that we have slightly underdone in much of Christian history. We have not overly emphasized, I do not think, the delight of God. If you were to ask the average person on the street what they think about God, I doubt that delighted would be the first thing on their lips. If you don't want to waste your life, live as if, point number five, God is at work and he's delighted. This is so hard, I want to give you some examples of delightful moments to remind you or give you at least a sense of how God feels. Those of you who've had a baby born into the world, do you remember that moment? It is a moment of sheer delight. Now, I'm not speaking from my wife's perspective, so I know cognitively that there are layers of pain and struggle and suffering related to that moment that I don't understand at all. But I was there with her, and I got to tell you, as they laid that newborn baby on her chest for the first time, she was not mad about it. She was suffused with delight. That's how God feels about working with you to mend the world. <laughs> you are the baby placed on the chest of God. He's delighted. I almost sent a text to my um, football coaches with whom I coached my young son Sam's team for, I don't know, four or five years, maybe six years. I still love those guys. Why? Because we went through it together. And as I sit on the couch sometimes watching a football game, I think about the time that we beat the Cambridge Lions in the semifinals. The Cambridge Lions were the superpower team that year, and our team was a cast-off team of little kids who had no business playing rep football that season. We weren't even a rep team. We were a house league team from Burlington, and they'd placed us in a rep league. We had no chance against these kids, and earlier in the year, they'd completely destroyed us. I don't know if you've ever coached a team where the other team's coach is doing everything they can to crush your soul and the soul of your kids. Running up the score, onside kick after onside kick, 
keeping his starters in the game and doing everything he could to score and score and score and score, even after it was 50 to nothing. That's the kind of team the Cambridge Lions were that year. But we'd progressed by this point and we got to the semifinals. And there was a moment in that game of breakthrough when our running back who'd been just hitting the hole and getting nothing and hitting the hole and getting nothing finally broke through the line at the last moment and broke free and scored a touchdown to give us the lead. And I'll never forget my coaches, grown men coaching, how old were you guys? 10 year olds, 11 year olds? Grown men coaching 10 and 11 year olds running down the sideline with the kids screaming and shouting and leaping and jumping for joy. That was a moment of pure delight. And that is how God feels about working with you to mend the world. Can you think back to that first real job that you got? And that moment of delight when you hung up the phone after having been accepted, after having been rejected, what, 17 times on your way to that job? Can anybody testify in this house? Isn't life just rejection upon rejection upon rejection upon rejection? And then once in a blue moon, you get that moment of acceptance and it fills you with joy. That's how God feels about working with you to mend the world. That moment of breakthrough is how he feels. <laughs> that moment yesterday when I clicked publish on my first book. Let every moment of delight that you experience remind you that that is how God feels about working with you. And let that sense of joy drive you. And point number six, embrace impossible grace. Let me read to you here um, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. And here we come to my life verse. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the darkness. Holding fast to the word of life, that in the day of Christ I may boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I just want to point out that at first blush, what is on tap here is impossible. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things? Yes, all things. <laughs> You're welcome. All things is the standard. You're like, great, that's impossible. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Next time you think to yourself, I can't do it, don't quit. Turn your eyes towards Jesus and keep going. Embrace impossible grace. Do all things without complaining or disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. Again, this is impossible. Here in the original, it's blameless and unblended. What's the problem with living in the world? 
It's like living in a Vitamix. Eventually, you get blended in. Let me just alert you to the constant pull of homogeneity that is real in our culture. Look at the, to borrow a phrase, customer-facing aspects of your life as a Jesus follower. Okay? The life that you project to the world. Look at it, and if it looks like everyone else's life around you, that is cause for concern. That you may become blameless and unblended, blameless and harmless. It's impossible. So what do you do? Do you quit? No. You turn your eyes upon Jesus, and you keep going. Step one, when it comes to dealing with the impossibility of grace, is to just ask the Lord for help. I've already touched on this, so I won't belabor the point. But ask him for help. I don't know if you're in the habit of tangibly, practically, actually asking God for help. Help me, Lord. Okay? Just let me commend to you the beauty of asking for help. Ask for help is step one. And then step two is take the next step. Ask for help, take the next step. Turn to Jesus and shine in the dark. Point seven. Life verse that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault. Here it is. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the darkness. Why do I consider myself a secular Christian? Yes, I do. I consider myself a secular Christian. Someday I'll write a book with that title, Secular Christian. In fact, I've already started it. <laughs> Why do I consider myself a secular Christian? Because in the midst of and among whom are pretty clear to me. And they've been clear to me since I first read them at 15 years of age. I kid you not, when I read Philippians 2, 15, as a 15-year-old, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. Raised in a Christian home, raised in the context of Christian culture, five generations preacher on my dad's side, four generations preacher on my mom's side. I'm as Christian as they come. I'm as church kid as they come. I wore suits to church every Sunday all my life until I met my wife. And then she changed everything. Thanks be to God. Okay, I'm as Christian as they come. I am the company man of all company men. And so when I read at 15 years of age that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of and among whom I realize that I'm the opposite of that. I don't live in the midst of the world. I don't exist amongst the unwashed masses. I'm a Christian kid happily living his life in his sweater vest in the Christian ghetto. In the midst of and among whom are pretty clear to me. The clarion call here and the clarion call of my life in ministry has been to come out of the Christian ghetto, to get into the real world and shine. So here's the question I've always asked myself. Maybe this will be helpful for you today. Do you have any non-Christian friends? If so, how many? How deep is your relationship with them? And God help us 
Is it merely a transactional relationship whereby you're hoping to befriend them until that moment when you can hand them a tract, sneak it in between the appetizer and dessert? Do you have any non-Christian friends? Do you serve in any non-Christian contexts? Yes, I missed the game, but the reason I started coaching football in Burlington, how many years ago now, hon? 15 years ago? Jordy would have been 10, he's now 20. Yeah, so 15 years ago. We did it because we realized one day we have no non-Christian friends, none. We gotta do something about that. So that, well, I could coach football, that would help us meet a whole bunch of people who don't know Jesus. And to this day, we have a large social network of people whom we met in that non-Christian context. And we served in that context for 15 years. How about you? Do you serve in any non-Christian contexts? Um, Do you have any genuine affection for non-Christian culture? I know people who live completely ghettoized lives, culturally speaking. Their music is ghettoized, their books are ghettoized, the people they hang out with are from the ghetto, that's it. They just, they live within that Christian subcultural context, period. Into that, let me challenge you with this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believeth on him should not perish but should have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. And if you are churchy enough like me that you have the words of 1 John 2 ringing in your head as I encourage you to love the world. I didn't know whether I should point it out because my dad always taught me if you don't point it out, they won't notice it. But for the sake of you who have, when we read in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I just wanted to think of you, my culturally Christian friend, and point out that in 1 John 2, when he's speaking of the world, he's speaking of the world system urging us to not buy into a secular, humanist, materialist system. This is not what John 3.16 is talking about when it reminds us so powerfully that God so loved the world, the beautiful world that he made and the beautiful people who live in it. For God so loved the world. Shine in the dark, friends. Shine in the dark. And point number eight, hold on to Jesus while you do it. And Josh, you can get ready to join me on stage. We're going to close with one song today and a little ministry time. Shine in the dark and hold on to Jesus. I mean, that is basically a recipe for vibrant Christianity. Is it not? Shine in the dark and hold on to Jesus. It's good enough for me. I get this out of verse 16 holding fast to the word of life. Again, you might be confused because you grew up in the ghetto, but hold fast to the word of life does not mean hold fast to your Bible. Okay, the Bible didn't even exist when these words were written. 
What does it mean then? Hold fast to the word of life. It means hold fast to Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of all people. It goes on to say that the light shines where? In the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. I want to invite you to think very carefully about all the things that you hold on to in life. I hope my preaching is always a sucker punch and a hug. I hope that you always find it profoundly disturbing and comforting at the same time. Think of all the things in your life that you hold on to. Call them to mind even now, friend. Think of those things that you hold on to. And then ask yourself the question, where does Jesus actually rank on that list? Of all the things that you hold dear, do you hold Jesus dearest? Or my friend, has he become an afterthought? Is he an accessory that you keep in your pocket and you pull him out when you need him? It's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, the maker of everything that is. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he is not a tame lion. He does not march to the beat of your drum. He is not motivated primarily by concern for your happiness or contentedness. He is God everlasting. He is the one who framed the worlds. He is the one who brought you into existence. He knows you better than you know yourself. He holds your existence together at this very moment. And he laid down his life for you so that your sin problem might be dealt with once and for all. And because he was God, not just a man, he arose again victorious from the grave, triumphing in his body over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. This is who Jesus is. He's not a toy. He's not a commodity. He's not your buddy. This is the king of glory we're talking about here. And he demands everything from you. And he calls you to join him in the unending task of mending the world. This is the high calling that ought to drive all Christian effort, all Christian joy, all Christian action is rooted in the person of Jesus, motivated by what Jesus did, who he was, and the ramifications thereof. It's time for casual Christianity to perish from the West. It's time for cultural Christianity to wave its final goodbye and to walk on off into the sunset, never to be seen again. Because Jesus did not come to call a ghetto unto himself as his bride. He came to call a church. And a church is a fancy English word for the Greek one, ekklesia, which simply means gathering. You are the gathered people of God, meant to scatter with God on his mission and culture to seek and save the lost and to work towards the redemption and the renewal of all things. Where does Jesus rank in your life, friend? Keeping Jesus in mind, remembering that you are loved and therefore have nothing to prove. 
keeping an eye on your obedience, doing the work because God is at work and he's delighted by it. Embracing impossible grace, shining in the dark, holding on to Jesus so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain is how not to waste your life. And somebody said... Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I hope you're leaving feeling encouraged. If you have any questions for us or you'd like to pay us a visit, you can find all the info you need on our website, gracecommunity.ca.